0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Today's Focus for Wednesday, May the 24th, 2023, at 9.53 a.m. Central Time. Today's Focus, Victory and Expectations, Victory and Expectations. I I I was just going to call this Victory in Jesus, and I think that's probably what I will put as the title. But for your focus today, I want you to consider this idea of victory in the Christian life and then expectations a pastor then can place upon the congregation. Let me put these two concepts together. Christianity constantly sells the idea that you as a Christian— have been given all of these things to absolute guarantee your victory in the Christian life. You've been given power. You've been given freedom. You've been given all like they, they sell it in so many different ways, right? That basically, like if you really listen to how they sell it, if you really listen to what they claim you have as a Christian, I don't know why you even sin, right? Like, like sin should be like this weird thing that like, wait, someone in the congregation sinned. I don't know how that's possible because we've been given this and this and this and this and this. Therefore, victory is certain, right? Victory is not only expected. Victory is just the normal thing. Like anyone who falls short of complete victory in the Christian life, they would be seen as the exception to the rule. The rule would be victory. The rule would be power, ability, freedom from sin. I mean, these these are the ways, This this is how Christianity sells it day in and day out. Well, if that is true, then as a pastor— What should be my expectations to people who have all of this power and all of this ability? What should be my expectations? Should I look at my congregation? I'm like, look. Look, no 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 no. You have ability, you have power. You you should be loving God with your heart, mind, body and soul. You should be studying the Bible all the time. You should be listening to sermons, you should be reading, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Like what should be the expectations? Now a lot of times congreg- people in the congregation never think this through, right? Because if you're walking around claiming that you have all of this power, this ability, that this is the way the Christian life should be lived, well, then the, the expectations by the pastor should be uh, to that level. It should be like, no, this, if you claim to have that ability and power, then this is what I should expect of you. It's this, I think sometimes there's a disconnect. Christians claim, all of this power and ability. But then if a pastor place that, places that expectation upon them, then they get upset, frustrated, irritated and, and bothered by it. But wait a minute. You can't claim. It's like if I claim the ability to be able to bench press 500 pounds then I should expect, then you then you should expect me to be able to lift 500 pounds. If I walk around telling everyone, I now have this ability to bench press 500 pounds, I can lift 500 pounds. Well, then that should be your expectations placed upon me. I claimed it. I'm telling everyone I have that ability. You should expect me to be able to do that. If you are a Christian claiming all of this power and ability in the Christian life, then the expectation should be, well, then show me, show me, show me. I I, I think that, that, I think that's fair, right? I think that's, I think that's a very fair thing. And I don't think Christians think it through because on one hand we claim all of this power and then we'll say, well, 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 I mean, you know, we're all still going to sin. Well, wait a minute, you claiming all of this power. So what kind of victory, can we expect as a Christian? So this morning I looked up the words to the hymn, Victory in Jesus. You, you probably know this hymn. A lot of people talk about our victory as Christians. Let's let's listen to this, or, or at least let me read the words to you. We're not going to play the hymn, but let me read the words to you. Victory in Jesus, very famous hymn. I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. We we could get into maybe... (laughs) We could get into maybe the order of salvation here, but okay, all right, let's continue. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing, and how he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory, O oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever, he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood, he loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory, and I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing and the old redemption story and and some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory, and then the chorus one more time. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Now, when you consider the words of that hymn, what kind of victory does that seem to be pointing to? Because again, I think within the minds of many Christians, victory is something tangible that we experience right now. We have power. We have ability. We have freedom from sin. So we can have this victory in my, you know, in our everyday life. Or is this referring to the fact that I have victory in Jesus, that in Jesus, all my sins are forgiven. In Jesus, I am declared perfect and holy. In Jesus, obviously I am guaranteed eternal life because it's not based on what I do, but based on what he accomplished. Now, let me state it this way: when it comes to the Christian life, is the victory we talk about, claim, and, and trust in, is it a positional victory, or do we look for and expect a practical practical victory? and our everyday life. And if we are to expect a practical victory in our everyday life, one, how do we measure that victory? What does that look like? How do we measure the victory? So we have we have to determine and and if we can expect a certain first we have to define what that looks like. We have to really how do we measure it, right? Do I commit less sins than I did? Do I commit 50%? Do I just change the sins that I commit? I mean, like we, we really have to find a way to measure it. And then once we find a way to measure it, then does that become the expectation placed on every church member, on every professing Christian? Christians love to talk a big game, but when push comes to shove, they seem to get very irritated when you then hold them to that standard. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, I love his word. But you no, know, I'm not going to I'm not going to do the Bible study. I'm not going to do devotion. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to do Bible study methods. I'm not I'm not going to actually engage in anything. But let me tell you. I love Jesus and I've been set free from sin and I don't love the things of this world. Well, wait a minute. Which is it? So, I think we can all agree on a positional victory, right? That because of an imputed righteousness, because of, because of the fact that we are in Christ, we have a complete positional victory, right? I'm not a sinner. I am completely obedient. I have eternal life. That is my positional victory. We can all agree on that. But what does the Christian life look like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? What does it look like? And practice, what kind of practical victory not only can we have, but then what should be the expectation for the average Christian? Now, the reason I'm asking these questions this morning, the reason I've now spent 10 minutes doing this, as I know this is only supposed to be 15 minutes, is because I think it was last night. I don't know what time. I was looking at the sermons 2.0 app. I clicked on, I tapped, I tapped on the tab for uh, feed, all the sermons, all the different ministries I follow, and a new sermon popped up in my feed about the dangers of overconfidence or the danger, I should say, singular, of overconfidence. Maybe it's the day. I think maybe he outlines the dangers, but okay, the danger of overconfidence and as I started listening, I started getting very frustrated. Now I know this goes right back to uh, what we talked about about having a critical spirit yesterday. I don't want to have a critical spirit, but I just became very frustrated because once again, Christianity was being sold that if you get Christianity, then dun dun da da. Basically, you get superpowers. You get victory, not positionally, but practically. Therefore, the expectation should be, I mean, if you really take it to his logical conclusion, it should be sinlessness. But if you say that, then people are like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. If you're claiming I have supernatural power, then I think sinlessness should be at least on the list of of possibilities, if not probabilities. It's just, it's so weird how Christianity sells that we have all of this stuff, but in practice, we never seem to live up to it. Why? Well, I guess according to this sermon, the problem is, is because we have overconfidence. So overconfidence can just mess everything up. But let's listen to a little bit of this. The volume is not very, is not great. I've already artificially um, amplified this. Probably I didn't even amplify it enough. I amplified it a lot, but I... I, I'm still not completely sure. So if all I can tell you is the volume is a little low, so you're going to have to turn you're going to have to turn the volume all the way up. When I come back in, I'll try to come back in at my, you know, at a at a whisper so I don't blow out your eardrums. Uh, I do apologize for this, but why people record their sermons at such a low volume, I'll never understand. I, don't, I will never understand it. Hey, we're going to record our sermons. OK, what are we going to do? We don't want anyone to hear what I'm actually saying. Okay. I'm joking. I'm joking. All right. So here we go. Let's review a little of this. The goal is not to review the entire sermon. The goal is to, re- to review until we get to the point where he starts selling Christianity. I mean, there's nothing unique about this. It's the standard template used in sermons all across this country, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. The only thing that, blow, so I, I, it's no big deal about this sermon because he's not saying anything that's shocking or like, oh my goodness, this is crazy because this is what pastors all across the country sell every single Sunday. I just don't know why the people in the, in the pulpit or the people in the pew, I don't know why they don't raise their hand and go, well, wait a minute, if that is true, then this should be the expectation. And I don't know if the pastors who sell it, why they don't hold people's, the people who are, who who supposedly have all of these things why don't they don't, why don't they hold them to that expectation like at some point someone should be like well wait a minute we're all claiming to be able to bench press 500 pounds but nobody here can even lift a 50 pound bag of sugar like i mean come on like like you know something's wrong here we are all claiming to be able to bench press 500 pounds and we're having a hard time moving a table like Somebody should be like, something doesn't make sense. We're all claiming to be able to slam dunk a basketball, but we we can't even touch the rim when we try to jump. Like, I, I don't know what other analogies to use. We're all claiming this ability, but no one ever does it. No one ever performs it. So is the issue we have the ability, we just don't use the ability? That seems to make no sense to me. So, or maybe, maybe we we misunderstand. Oh, you tell me. Here we go. Now, this is hilarious because he's going to say all these things Christians have, but he's preaching on 1 Corinthians. (laughs) A book filled with failure, 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 failure. Remember, he's preaching from a book where this was written to the people (laughs) This was written to the people that this book, the book he's preaching from was written to people that the book itself describes this way. First Corinthians chapter three. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able, for ye are yet carnal. For there where for where for whereas there is among you envying, strife, divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? So this carnal church, these babes in Christ, where they're fighting and arguing and strife, this church, so you're gonna preach from a letter written to that church, to those kinds of people and say, Hey, guess what, everyone? We have everything we need to have victory, but the Corinthian church they just weren't using it. I guess that's your ace up your sleeve. Hey, but see, but if you really think about it logically, it's not really such a great ace, right? Hey, the reason Christians don't have this victory is not because they don't have, have not been given the ability or the power. It's just, they're not using it. So I guess that thinks that gets you off the hook because you can continue to sell it that way. But at some point. You should then expect the people No, 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 no. Anything less than victory is unacceptable because you have actually the power and the victory. So we will not tolerate any sin in this church. Not one. Right. Should that not be the expectation? I, I, I don't know. But let let's let's see what happens here. Here we go. Again, the volume is way too low, but here we go.
1: Right. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. As we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, I didn't think we'd be this far so, uh, did it go really as quick as it has gone? But, um, it's all been good, but we're, after chapter 10, this part, he's going to answer questions that deal with things offered unto idols at the end of this chapter, the end of chapter 10, not at the beginning. But then we'll get into spiritual gifts and, uh, the role of women in the church and the role of, of, uh, worship in the church. It's just, there were all kinds of problems in Corinth and, uh. God deals with them, and it's it's helped uh, us for two thousand years. Churches, so First Corinthians chapter ten verse one. Moreover, brethren, I would that you should be that I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were all were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat that the same spiritual meat. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, and the rock that that followed them, and that rock was Christ, and He was a.
0: Just my own, uh, my own personal observations. I uh, I do love when I hear that other preachers, when they're reading something, they may like you know. Moreover, more okay. Moreover, brethren, I would not. I I would not that ye should be. Ign- I love when I hear other pastors just kind of make make that same mistake because I, I cannot speak for other pastors, but it makes me so angry when I try to read a passage and I either I just I'm just stumbling over the words for whatever reason. You just start looking at it and you're just like you just keep misreading it, or you're blowing past the punctuation, or, or you're not pausing, or or whatever the case may be. And, you know, um, I, uh, I would not that ye should, I would not that ye should, or, you know, and whatever the case may be. It's just I, when other people do it, I'm like, okay, good. I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. Most pastors, you know, I don't, it may bother them. But for me, it drives me absolutely crazy. But so, okay, that's, that's just an extra that, you know, you you can you don't have to pay for that one. That's extra. That's just me. Just get telling my own personal observations when I listen to preaching because I hear things that I'm like, oh, I've done that, or oh, I hate when I do that, or oh, good, I'm not the only one. But back to our original theme here: victory and expectations. I, again, I, I just have to point out: I find it fascinating that he's going to sell. Here in a little bit, all of our supposed ability, while he's preaching from a chapter... That says, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea and all did eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. (laughs) For they were overthrown in the wilderness. I find it, I just find it hilarious that you can go to a chapter, uh, again, first written to a, a chapter in a letter that was written to a church that was a total and complete mess. And then Paul references them back to Israel and how they were a complete mess. And even after all of that generation dies off in the wilderness, when they go into the promised land, They do more, like, like when you read the Bible, it's failure, 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 failure. And then Christians read a book where it shows people constantly failing, constantly falling short, constantly falling into sin. And we're like, we don't have to, we can stop doing it. We can do it because we have the power. Well, they didn't have the power. Who, where, 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 were the people who had the power, who was given the power? Oh, we have the power. Everyone else in the Bible didn't have the power. Or maybe over and over and over the Bible shows the failure of men to, uh, to obey God's law, to, to come anywhere close to maintaining a life that is even consistent with God's law. Maybe the story of the Bible is that we will never keep God's law, but our hope is in the one who not only gave the law, but kept it perfectly on our behalf maybe that's where our hope is maybe that's where the victory is but christianity is constantly changing that story not about the victory we have in jesus but the victory that we will have in our own lives because now we have been given supernatural power in order to accomplish said victory it is just a weird like how did the story get so changed but let's see how he's how he's going to handle this
1: solid rock martha amen solid rock praise god But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who would not suffer you to be tempted, above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Lord, add your blessings to the reading now and the preaching of your word. We thank you for the good day today thus far. Thank you for the morning services and the shower this afternoon. And Lord, just a blessing to be with God's people once again tonight. Speak to us and through us in Jesus' name, amen. The apostle has dealt with the matters of things offered into idols in chapter 8 by telling us that we should be motivated by love for others and we should never live, exercise our freedom as a stumbling block to a weaker believer. Chapter 9, he uses himself as an example of a mature Christian who had liberty to receive monetary help from the church, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the sinner, and for his own sake, he chose not to do that. Now in chapter 10, he continues with the same subject, but he takes like a, kind of a, a parenthesis here and talks about the danger of overconfidence. The church of Corinth was a gifted church. He says that in chapter 1. Um, they, they were gifted. Paul said, if you wait, remember way back when, he said, you you're fall behind in no gifts. They had the gifts. They had the gifts of the Spirit. They weren't using them properly, but they had the gifts of the Spirit. They were a gifted church, but they were also puffed up. And remember, he said, knowledge puffeth up. They were puffed up. They were full of pride. And because of them being proud, there was a big danger for them falling into sin and exercising their liberties wrongfully. The Bible says in Proverbs sixteen eighteen, pride goeth before a fall, before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Read this illustration. Years ago, this was in Southern California, Time Magazine ran an article about a 64 year old lady named Grace Wiley and her room full of snakes. She loved snakes. Best of all, she loved the cobras, declaring that they were the most intelligent and most easily trained. On one occasion, she agreed to pose with her newest pet, a five foot cobra she had recently received from India. To get him into position, uh, for the picture, she patted his head, stroked his back, and quietly coaxed it to extend its hood. You know, the, the uh, cobra's the one that flare out, right? The hood. So um, anyway, as the cobra's head began to bob back and forth rhythmically, Miss Wiley felt suddenly that it was not responding well. It's getting nervous, she said. I better put it away. When she reached for it, the cobra struck. For a full 30 seconds she struggled to get the needle-sharp fangs out of her middle finger, pressing with all her strength against the cobra's locked jaws. When she had torn the snake loose, she carefully returned it to its cage. Then she calmly instructed the photographer to apply tourniquets to her wrist and elbow and told him where to find stimulants and needles. But the needles were rusty and the vials broke in the photographer's hands. Take me to the hospital at once, she said. This is very serious. All the medical help and all the serums at the Long Beach Memorial Hospital were of no avail to save the life of Grace Wiley. Exactly one hour and 40 minutes after she had been bitten, her body suddenly stiffened as she lay dead on the hospital bed. This is a lesson. She, why did I read all that? Pride goeth before destruction, and the haughty spirit before fall. This, the author here, he says, it's like this, we play around with sin And then sin plays around with us.
0: We play around with sin and sin plays around with us. All right. Now, here in a minute, he's going to talk about the victory we can have. And then I wanted you to think about the expectations. But once again, I'm always baffled by how many times when Christians talk about sin, how they describe it. He's just think about the illustration. All right. So so basically what got the woman killed was supposedly pride, arrogance. She played around with sin and then sin plays around with us. So sin is being used as the illustration of basically a cobra. Right. So don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. Don't have overconfidence when you see... Don't don't play with sin because it's going to play with you. So in other words, sin is being demonstrated or explained as something external to us. See, the sin is over here. The sin is over there. Like I'm looking around the room. The sin is that thing or that thing. I'm pointing to different things in this room. Like it's always like it's the cobra. So you just don't play with the cobra because if you do, it will play with you. The problem with the entire analogy is that the... the, the the cobra is inside of us i i don't understand why christians never seem to understand that we always speak of sin as as this external thing now, I agree. We should not mess around with sin that's external to us. We should not. I completely agree with that. We may, we are fools and so many times we mess and do, uh, do with things that may ultimately destroy us. I understand that. I need to do better at that. We all need to do better at that. But let's just make it very clear from a purely theological per- perspective. Let's, let's just make this—there's there, the practical aspects of this, and then there's the theological, right? From a practical, yes, if I see a cobra, don't bring the cobra home and take a picture with it. Don't mess around with it. In other words, whatever that sin is, don't play around with it because it will mess—play around with you and ultimately kill you. I can agree with that. The problem is from a theological perspective, even if I leave the cobra alone, I don't bring the cobra home. I don't take a picture with the cobra. I don't pat the cobra on the head. I, so the cobra can never strike me, right? Great. I avoided that external sin. But if I look at it from a truly biblical and theological perspective, i I still may commit 900 sins, even related to the Cobra, even if I don't touch it or get near it, because the sin is inside of me, the desire, the lust, the whatever. Now you say, well, that's far better than, than playing with the Cobra. It may be from a practical standpoint. I'm not denying that. But from a theological perspective, I'm still sinning, 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 sinning. So do I pat myself on the back and go, Look at the victory I have. Look at the victory I have because I didn't bring the Cobra home. I didn't show overconfidence. Well, I may have made a wise decision not to mess with the Cobra, but if I'm still committing all of the sins internally in thought, in thought, word, desire, and feeling, from a biblical perspective, I have to acknowledge still how sinful and how far I've fallen short, See, we just look at an external list and say, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And you've got victory. But that's not victory if I'm not getting anywhere near the cobra. But inside, there's lust, desire, wrong feelings, wrong this, wrong that. At least from a biblical standpoint, I'm still in sin. Now, the issue here, he's going to basically say, hey, we can have victory, I guess, over the cobra. But does that victory apply to the cobra inside of me?
1: Let's see where he takes this. Let's see where he takes this. And um, that's what happened. And that's what was happening in in Israel of old. He uses that as an example in the Corinthian church. He uses Israel's failure as a danger to not be a castaway. Remember in chapter 9, he ends... I want
0: you, I want you, he
1: even acknowledges Israel
0: failed, the people at Corinth failed, okay? I just want you to realize this is a story of failure on both sides. It's just, now you could say, but Paul is telling them to stop fail. I do understand. We do, we will constantly, look, the Bible constantly gives us God's law. Don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. The question is, can we ever actually do it? To what level can we actually achieve it? And again, even if you can achieve it externally of what value is that other than practical value, but from a theological perspective, what is the value if internally you're falling short over and over and over and over
1: and over again? That he says, I don't want to be a castaway. Then he goes into chapter 10 because many of them were castaways. But he talks about the danger of overconfidence. Someone said, let us learn and then live, not merely live and learn. Revelation saves us the expense of experience. That's a good thing. Number one, the blessings that we have in Christ. That's what he wanted them to see first. He, reads, he, he tells them about the, the pointing back to the children of Israel. Now this was a church in a Gentile city, so it was primarily Gentiles, but they knew the Bible, Paul had been there, Paul had taught them the Old Testament, uh, that was the scriptures that they had at that time, the New Testament was being written. So he points them back and he talks about our fathers. So he goes back and talks about all the blessings they had. What did they have? Well, he says, moreover, brethren, I would that you should not be ignorant, how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They had guidance, the cloud. You remember the reference to God's wonderful guidance and leading in the wilderness. I mean, the cloud rested on the tabernacle. And when the cloud moved, they moved. And don't you know the guys that, that uh, set up the tabernacle? I kind of, you know, I think, man, I, I can get it, get it set up and say, watch that cloud. I hope it don't move anytime soon, you know, because it sure did take a lot of work. Next day, clouds moving or something. I don't know. But anyway, they had not guidance. We have guidance. We have the Word of God. We have the completed Word of God. The Bible says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We have guidance. We have the Spirit of God who guides us. That's what Jesus said in John 16, that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. We have.
0: (laughs) Here we go. I, see, this is this is the look. He's not saying anything that is even remotely controversial in ninety nine point nine percent of churches all across the United States of America. So I'm of the I'm of the one percent who may have a problem with this, and I don't even know if we make up a full one percent. Where we probably make up less than one percent. But I am so tired of hearing Christians say that the Holy Spirit is leading you and me into all truth. I am so tired of hearing that. 2,000 years of church history. The Holy Spirit is supposedly leading all Christians into truth. Yet, Christians can't agree on how to interpret the Bible. We don't agree on which hermeneutical method is right. We do not agree on salvation. We do not agree, is it... Is it, is it a semi-Pelagian, Pelagian Pelagian view? Is it an Augustinian view? Is it an Arminian view? Is it a Calvinistic view? Like, there, there's not even, there's not even agreement on the order of salvation. There's not an agreement on baptism. There's not agreement on the Lord's Supper. There's not agreement even on the structure of the church. There is literally agreement on, there's not even agreement on how to define the word repentance for crying out loud. There's not agreement on anything, but we all claim the Holy Spirit is leading us us into all truth. And again, if you take that, so then, so here again, that should lead us to victory, right? The Holy Spirit's leading you into all truth. So then what should be the expectation? Well, the expectation is that all Christians should be on their way to truth. And just, and just think of the implications of that. If I stand up in a pulpit, and I'm saying after much study, after much prayer, the Holy Spirit has led me to the truth of this passage. And then I preach it in a certain way that I am claiming, therefore, my interpretation of the passage is is infallible because the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth led me to that interpretation. Therefore, you would not be able to question me. You would not be able to challenge me because I, you can't turn around and say, no, the Holy Spirit led you to a different truth because there's only one truth. So the Holy Spirit wouldn't lead you to one truth and me to one truth. So why are there ever church splits? Why is there ever church division? Why is there different interpretations? Or maybe the Holy Spirit's not leading us into all truth and that that promise was specifically for those who would be writing the New Testament, which we would want them led into all truth since we believe that what they wrote was true, right? So that would make sense. But but Christians claim that. Well, if you claim that, what should be the expectation? Everyone in your church, you should agree on everything, right? Why does anyone ever leave your church? Why does anyone ever argue with the pastor? Why does anyone ever disagree with the pastor? Why do you people email me and disagree with me and what I say in my podcast? I mean, the Holy Spirit's leading me into all truth. Oh, but the Holy Spirit's leading you to a different truth. Like, do Christians not hear themselves going, we sound ridiculous? Yeah, we sound like we're, th- we're three seconds away from the insane asylum. But we just preach that. Over and, over and 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 over. And every Christian claims it. I was reading an article yesterday on the Christian Post. And this person, um, she she came on, uh, she wrote this. Long, I, I, I wish I could find the comment, but it was basically, all Christians are wrong. Basically, we're wrong about salvation. We're wrong about everything. The entire corporate church is is corrupt. She doesn't go to church anymore. She rejects basically almost all the teachings of Christianity because she studied the Bible. And I think it was two verses in Revelation that helped her see that we're all wrong. And then basically at the end, she basically claim it's wonderful when you listen to the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful when you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. She's claiming that her now rejection of basically all of Christianity was based off Her studying the Bible and being led into truth by the Holy Spirit. And I was just looking at it going, that's, 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 that's the never ending problem with this. If everyone claims the Holy Spirit's leading them into all truth, then why do they even need to listen to anybody else? And then whatever conclusion they come to, well, that's the Holy Spirit who led them into that. So then everyone, like you, you, I mean, it's just a pointless, like, well, they're going to think they're right and there's no way to convince them that they're wrong because they believe the Holy Spirit led them there. And they never stopped to go, well, wait a minute. Well, why didn't the Holy Spirit lead everyone else there? Well, then you claim the other people aren't saved. I mean, it's just a ridiculous, like, I don't know how Christians don't ever stop to go, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. All right, we will continue. If you're hearing all of the rumbling and things going on outside, we got a thunderstorm. And so we got uh, thunder and stuff and hopefully, you know. I'm still here in a couple of hours. <laughs> all right, here we go. It's been it's been crazy storms here in West Texas lately. All right, well, let's continue. Let's see. So the first thing supposedly we have is we have the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth. And let me make this very clear. I wish that was so true. Oh, I wish that was true. I, I You don't even understand how much I wish that was true. Because you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth. There's going to be unity. There's going to be peace. There's not going to be church splits. There won't be people arguing with me online. There won't be people arguing with me, you know, what I'm preaching. There won't be people leaving my church. It would just be unity. There would be one baptism. There would be one understanding of salvation, one understanding of the Lord's Supper, one understanding of church structure, one eschatology. It would be it would be wouldn't it be gr- one soteriology? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be amazing? Oh, man, I wish that. I wish it was true. You don't even understand how much I wish it was true. I wish it was true. I, I, if I, I took all of my wishes, it would be up there in the top two or three. That, that the Holy Spirit is leading us into all truth. And all we have to do is just, well, you know, it's just going to be this beautiful world of, of uh, all of us are going to come to the same conclusions. There'd be one commentary. Wouldn't need many. It'd be great. Yeah, just not, again, that's kind of a victory that is promised, but no, but nobody wants to live up to those expectations, or, or even think about the implications
1: of those expectations. That they had deliverance, he says, and how they all passed through the sea. This is a reference to the children of Israel being passed through, delivered from Egyptian bondage, and walking through the. The, the dry bed of the Red Sea, that was deliverance. It's a type of salvation. They, through the blood, they applied the blood on, uh, on uh, the Passover there. They applied the blood and then they were delivered. So it's a picture of our salvation. We have deliverance through Jesus Christ from past bondage and present power of sin. We have passed John 5. Did you hear that?
0: So not only is the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth, we have been delivered from bondage, past bondage, to present power over sin. You presently have the power, you have supernatural power, the power of God over sin. Now, positionally, I have, yes, I do not sin. But if you're claiming that I have power practically, what should be the expectation? Well, if you have divine supernatural power over sin, you should stop sinning, not only externally, but internally. And if you have that power, bring in all the, all the cobras you want. You have more power over the cobra than the cobra has over you. You can't say if we play with sin, sin will end up playing with us. Why? I have more power than that, than, than, than sin has. You shouldn't be. Why on one hand, we supposedly have power, but then we're like, avoid this. Don't watch this. Don't look here. Don't go here. Don't be out after midnight. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Why is there 9 million prohibitions and 500 different things? And here, download this app. Have someone hold you accountable. Do this. Do Why? I have power over sin. Well, I mean, you have power over sin, but I mean, I mean, you know, you're still vulnerable. Well, I'm, if I've got supernatural power, then I don't, I don't know. If I've got supernatural power, I'm not going to be so worried oh, well, that's overconfidence. Well, well, that's not overconfidence. That would just be a realistic understanding of the power in which I have. If I believe I can lift, if I know that I have the power to lift 500 pounds and I'm walking by these guys like, hey, come on, show us. Well, no, I can't do that because I don't want to be overconfident. No, I'd be like, come on, get out of my way. Boom, there, boom, boom, lift it three times. There you go. What more do you want? So on one hand, we supposedly have this power, but on the other hand, we're, it's all, we're always treated like you're one second away from committing the great, greatest sin. So don't do this. Don't do this. Cover your eyes, cover your ears, cover your mouth, and run for your life. So Which is it? Power or a perpetual state of one second away from total failure?
1: 5.24 says, from death unto life. Then He talks about their identification, verse 2, and we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And this is not a reference to water baptism like we were talking about this morning, but it is a reference to their identification with Him and their allegiance to Him as their spiritual leader. Moses was God's man. God spoke to Moses, and Moses then gave God's Word to the people. And we, too, have identification with Christ. We've been spiritually baptized into Christ when we were saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says we're all baptized into one spirit that when we're saved, God spiritually baptizes us into the body of Christ. Then it's pictured in water baptism when we pass through the water baptism pools. It's pictured what happened to us in the spirit. So we have identification with Christ. They had provision verses 3 and 4, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So God fed them manna from heaven and provided them water in the desert. Remember when they they complained about not having any water, and and God made water for them, and and Moses smote the rock, and and water came forth, and then they complained about not having any food, and God rained down manna for them to eat. And that's a picture, that's what He's talking about there, provision. Well, Christ is our provision. We partake of Him when we partake of the Word of God. And we, we drink the everlasting water and we partake of the bread of life. Tonight we're partaking of the bread of life. We're drinking of the everlasting water. So because of God's blessings in the children of Israel's life, you would have think they would have never failed. But they did. They had all they needed for victory, and so do we.
0: They had all they needed for victory, and so do we. We, You have everything you need for victory. Now, if that is true, then what should be the expectation placed upon you? And yeah, you can hear the rain coming down in the background. It is coming down, all right? What, what, What should be the expectation? Now, to me, if someone says, hey, you have everything you need for victory, well, what is victory in the Christian life? What is victory? Is it sinning less or is it being sinless? Because I don't know how sinning less would necessarily be a victory when the standard God has given me is be holy as I am holy. Well, that would be without sin. So as long as I'm sinning, then that's not victory. It may be victory over one sin, but what good uh, do I really claim victory? Oh, I didn't commit that sin, but I committed 50. I've not done that thing physically, but I've committed it mentally 375 times. Do I, am like, what well, victory in Jesus. So I, do I start singing victory in Jesus? Well, yes, I do sing victory in Jesus because in Jesus I'm victorious, even though I've committed those sins because in Christ I'm perfect. My positional victory, I, I 100% agree with. It's the practical victory I don't, but he says that. So basically what he's, he's appointing to, so, I mean, at least it's implied is, hey, Israel had everything they needed for victory. You have everything you need for victory, right? But we all continue to sin. Why? Because the problem is overconfidence. See, we just become overconfident in our in our ability. So if we can get rid of overconfidence, then I guess we will stop sinning, I, I guess. We'll just listen to just a little bit more of this, and then you can go look it up. It's on the Sermons 2.0 app. The danger of overconfidence— uh, by Dennis uh, Blankenship. And you should you should look it up and you should listen to the rest. I really challenge you to listen to the rest. Uh, you can follow them on uh, the Sermons 2.0 app and all of their new sermons will be in your feed. Um, by all means, listen. And you say, well, you're disagreeing. I'm not trying to, look, I, I, I only, I, look, I know I disagree and I'm not trying to be critical. I'm trying to remind, remind myself of our study on a critical spirit yesterday. But um, I'm being honest that What they're saying, they're not saying anything wrong or or controversial to 99% of Christianity. I just know, I know I'm in the minority of the minority of the minority. I just don't believe that we've been, that if I, I just know this, if I claim I've been given everything for victory in this life in a practical way, then the expectation should be basically sinlessness. Because I don't know how anything less than sinlessness can be considered a victory, you could point to one victory, but like, well, like, so do we define victory by, I, I, I don't like, well, I got victory over that sin, but it, it depends. I, I, to, be, to truly be victorious over a sin, I, I could, I would have to have not committed that sin externally and internally and in thought, word, desire, feeling, or action. Just love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I've never achieved that. So then how, I mean, that's like the basics and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I, I don't know how, what, what? how do I define victory if I don't even get that right?
1: And he says, but with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You know, I think one of the biggest problems with believers is that they don't understand who they are in Christ and all they have in Christ. And you've been here long enough Listen to me, most of you, that know that I, I'm big on identify in Christ, who you are in Christ. Because once you know who you are in Christ, that will help you live right. And the Bible tells us who we are in Christ. But the, many, many know, but they don't apply or appropriate what they know. So the key is knowing
0: who you are in Christ. Well, then you should just live right. All you got to do is appropriate that knowledge. You just got to use that knowledge. So in Christ, you're perfect, holy, and righteous. So now you just appropriate that knowledge and then you become a perfect and righteous and holy in life, I guess. So let me ask you today's focus. I want you to think about What have you been given for victory in this life? How do you define victory in this life? And then what should be the expectation that comes from that? What have you been given in this life for victory in this life, in this life, practically? And what, how do you define that victory? And then once you figure those two things out, then what's the expectation Like, can I come to the pulpit and say, hey, guys, why did you not listen to the sermons from last week? Hey, guys, why did you not study the Bible? Hey, guys, why did you not do the Bible study exercise? Hey, guys, because you have everything you need to live a victorious Christian life. And if you're going to live a victorious Christian life, loving his word, reading his word, studying his word should be a minimum expectation. So do I do you place that expectation on everyone? Should your expectation be is, hey, I know you guys had basically a week of no sin, so we, won't re- we don't really need to confess anything because, I mean, you've got, all the vi- you've got everything you need for victory. And then when someone does commit a sin, do we all look shocked and like, how did that happen? You had everything you needed for victory. Why did you not appropriate it? Why did you not apply it? Why did you not use it? So it shouldn't even be really, the, the, the issue should be, no, stop it. Go appropriate all the stuff you've been given for victory. Just don't do it again. And why is it that Israel had everything for victory and they failed? The Corinthians had everything they had for victory and they failed. Why is it that everyone who supposedly had everything they needed for victory failed? Why is the Old Testament a never-ending story of failure? And why is even all the New Testament churches, it's struggle, failure, fighting, arguing, false doctrine, over and over and over and over again. You even get to the book of Revelation and the churches are a mess again. There you go. There's your today's focus. I know it's supposed to be 15 minutes, but that's okay. I'm, 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 we'll, we'll, figure out, we'll figure out what today's focus is going to look like in the future. In the meantime, I'm just going to use it to start each day saying that's what I'm focused on because that's what I'm focused on today. It's just trying to understand what do I have for victory? What, how do I define that victory? And then what should the expectations be? Love to get your thoughts news. if at yahoo, yahoo.com. News. if at yahoo.com. That's news. if at yahoo.com. News. if at yahoo.com. Love to get your thoughts. Love to get your feedback. News. if at yahoo.com. And that is your today's focus for Wednesday, May the 24th, 2023.